At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Good morning, church. Now is a great time if you're on Woodside Kids to make your way back to grab a handle on that rope school bus we got available for you to take you down to Woodside Kids. A great time would be had down there. How many campuses do you know? There's the hope that one day Jesus is coming back. What a beautiful day that is. What awesome hope it is to look forward to that. And as Christians, man, what a hope we have. But as we look at that, knowing someday that Jesus is coming back, have you noticed that lately end of times predictions have been on the rise? There's chatter on the internet and in your social media feeds that say Jesus is coming back soon. In fact, a lot of people are saying it's this year. I'm not saying that from up here that it's this year, but that's what's being said out there. You know, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. So many things are happening. There's a lot going on. People are constantly predicting this. This is nothing new. Since the time of the early church in AD 33, 34 to 1900, there were hundreds of predictions of when Jesus was going to come back and make things right. But in the last 120 years, between 1900 and today, those predictions have increased 15-fold. It's happening more and more often. People have done it multiple times. I don't know if you remember in 1994, Harold Camping predicted the world was going to end in September of 1994. Oh, it didn't happen. Late September 1994, that didn't happen either. Okay, it's October 1994. Just like him, I'm not making fun of the fella, but just like him and all the others, they have one thing in common. They're all wrong. But it's not difficult to see why people want to predict Christ's return. The last year, not to mention the last hundred years, but the last year has been very difficult. It's been overwhelming. It's been filled with anxiety aches and pains, and people are desperately seeking answers. We have to be careful that we're not combing the text to try to find numerical answers for when Jesus is coming back and miss the greater narrative that's right there for us. So rather than living our lives only half listening to Jesus' words with one finger on the eject button ready to get out of here, let's take a moment and see exactly what God is saying about the future. And then take that and say, how do we live today in light of what Jesus says about the future. 
That's the reason we're starting a new series today. We want to look at how we can make the most of today and live fully for Christ today based on the events that he says are going to come. It's a brand new series in Matthew 24 and 25. We're calling it What Now? It's how tomorrow shapes today. And then it's the section of Matthew we're going to dive into. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus shares with his disciples a prophetic message about some things that are to come that are going to signal the destruction of Jerusalem. They're going to signal Jesus' ultimate return. And they're going to signal the end of the age. It was very significant at that time to the disciples so that they could live mission-focused for Jesus while they awaited these things. And truly, it's no different for us here and now. So let's dive into that. Let's read it together in Matthew chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles, break them out now. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 24, we're going to read the entirety of it, and then we're going to dive in. 24 verses 1 through 14. Says Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains." Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So as we look at the text this morning, we're going to see Jesus make three declarations. The first one is a great destruction. And just so that you understand where we are in the timeline of redemptive history, we're only a few days here from when Jesus is going to the cross, where he's going to sacrifice himself and then be resurrected. A couple chapters earlier in 21, we see Jesus riding into, the temp- into Jerusalem to make his way to the temple, his triumphal entry with shouts of Hosanna and palm leaves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he goes to the temple and he heals people. And that's when he flips the money changers' tables. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And then the very next day, the scribes and Pharisees come to confront him. They want to challenge his authority. They try hitting him with some clever questions to try to trap him, questioning who he is. And he comes back to them and confronts them with several parables that beautifully put them into their place, and he calls them out for their love of the law and the manipulation of people for their own selfish means. And that's where we pick up in chapter 24 today. So let's reread verses 1 and 2 as we get started here this morning. As Jesus left the temple, he was there, now he's going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. 
But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So verse 1 says that Jesus left the temple and was going away, meaning he was walking down from the heights of the temple across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. It's a distance of only about a half a mile, so it's not that far away. And picture it, that as he's leaving the temple, he's technically abandoning it, never to return. After that, the temple has no future but to be destroyed. Hundreds of years earlier, Ezekiel prophesied this. Speaking of this situation, he said, The holiest of holies, and remember, the inner portion of the temple was the holiest of holies. Ezekiel said, The holiest of holies has left the desolate house. This is God who had resided with his people in the temple for hundreds of years, was figuratively walking out of the front door and turning off the lights. This mighty temple, this house of God, was now empty. Just as Ezekiel had prophesied, it was desolate. And this symbolized the end of the temple's relevance in the purposes of God. But the disciples didn't understand these things immediately. You have to remember that these were kind of country boys from Capernaum. They may have never even been to Jerusalem. They probably haven't even seen the temple. So here they are sitting on the side of the Mount of Olives, looking across a small half-mile expanse, and all that's in front of them is the beauty of the temple. Massive blocks and alabaster walls and golden roof, and they're just in awe of it. They were truly mesmerized. But then in true Jesus form, he blows their minds, by saying it's all going to come tumbling down. He said there will not be a stone here left upon another that will not be thrown down. So the temple was abandoned. The glory of God's presence had departed. All that was left was this empty shell slated for destruction. This was a very stark expression of Jesus' rejection of Jewish nationalism and the religious leaders whose power was focused on the temple and all of its rituals. Throughout his ministry, Jesus warned of being overly religious like the Pharisees. He rejected the identity that they found in just following rules so that they could reject some people and be idolized and applauded by other people. And as he departed the temple for the last time, he scolded them in his seven woes, saying things like, "They they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens that are very hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with one finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. But that's not what Jesus was there for. He came to replace that religious activity with personal relationship. He came to give us a new identity in him, free from the law, free from those rules and dripping with his grace. With the temple and with the law, there was a continual need for sacrifices to take away sin. As the author of Hebrews states, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, at least not permanently. So Jesus, when he left the temple, wasn't just closing up shop. He was declaring that he is the temple now. Jesus is where God's perfect worship finally takes place. Jesus is where you and I can now say, the Lord is there, and I am completely and permanently forgiven. 
If you remember back to the interaction Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well, she was frustrated because of being a Samaritan and not being able to worship in the temple. He's also making good on the statement that he made to the woman at the well. He said, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. True worship was now through him in spirit and in truth. So when we see these things, when we hear of him declaring that the temple's coming down and 40 years later it lays in pieces, when we hear of him making that declaration to the woman at the well, and here we see it coming to fruition, we can have great hope that what Jesus says is the truth. No matter what we're experiencing in our lives today, we can trust the word of God that he is faithful and that he delivers on everything that he declares he's going to do. Second thing we see here this morning, Jesus declares a great deception. As he talks with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, his declaration of the temple falling down and being destroyed is so big to them, they would think that this is the beginning of the end. It's all over. But we're going to see in these next six verses that he begins to extend their horizons to help them realize that a future without the temple is completely possible. So let's look at verses 3 through 8 together. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? It's very shocking to them. And what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Jesus' reply to the disciples' question starts with one of the main themes of this conversation. It's the danger of being led astray. And being led astray can happen in two ways, we'll see. By imposters, and also by too hastily jumping to end times conclusions. Jesus' heart for his disciples and for us is that we would not be led astray by some worldly deception. That can come in many forms. We could stand up here and list them all, but they're numerous. It's anything that takes our eyes off of Jesus is a deception. And it's happened over and over throughout the ages. We have to affix our faith and our eyes on Jesus and forsake anything else that would lead us away. And additionally, he desires that we not waste any of our time trying to figure out the timing of these events. Wars and natural disasters are often seen as signs of the end of the age, but these things have always been happening. They're part of a fallen world that's groaning under the weight of sin, and we have to expect them. Because if we're not careful, we can get wrapped up in these groanings as signals of the end and miss the much bigger, dec bigger declaration that Jesus made. Because if we look closer, we'll see that he's much less concerned about the prophecy and way more concerned about our perseverance. That's the key word. It's perseverance. It means persistence in doing something despite the long road ahead or despite the difficulty of the task. And this is what Jesus' heart was for his disciples. His desire for them was to persist in all that he had for them 
even against all the difficulty they were going to have coming at them. And today he's got the same desire for us. He longs for us not to be led astray by the things of this world, both enticing and painful. Let's be honest, both of those things can lead us astray. There are so many enticing things out there in this world that are begging for our attention. You can't turn your head left or right and not see something that wants to pull your focus away from Jesus. Then on the other hand, there's pain, which is another part of this world. And pain has its false Christ can be the son of the living God. Only Jesus is. No false Christ came to earth and lived with this creation to understand everything they're going through, their struggles and their temptations, but Jesus did. No false Christ could live that life here on earth sinlessly, but Jesus did. And no false Christ could offer that sinless life as a sacrifice for your sin. Suffer and die and be raised from the dead. But Jesus did. Only Jesus can do these things for you. Trust in him today. No peace and rest instead of clawing toward an uncertain and elusive worldly satisfaction. Come to Christ today. Trust in him in faith knowing that what he says is what he does. Over the last year, we may have been caught up in all that's happening around the world and taken our eyes off of God and what he has for us in the here and now. We've heard about things like wars and nations rising against nations and pandemics and other things that have grabbed our attention, that have stolen our joy, have replaced our joy with anxiety. But Jesus' words that he spoke 2,000 years ago to his disciples are just as important to us today when he said, see that you're not alarmed. These things have to take place, but the end is not yet. Lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
sure those were tough words for the disciples to hear. They had lived with Jesus for three years. They had watched him do countless miracles. They knew of his power. In fact, John's account of the miracles in John's gospel says that we saw some, but we didn't see them all. And he theorized that if they were to all be recorded, the entire world couldn't hold the books of the miracles of Jesus. So here's the disciples. They've seen this power at play. They think when Jesus rises, surely there's going to be a time of glory and a time of triumph. But instead of that, Jesus tells them to expect this prolonged period of persecution. He says from outside of the church, you're going to be persecuted. We almost might expect that. Tribulation and martyrdom, being hated by nations for his namesake from outside the church. But then Jesus also says you're going to get persecution from the inside of the church too. He says from inside, you can expect many to fall away and betrayal and hatred and love to grow cold because of a love of the world. Jesus here is assuring us when he talks about inside the church and outside the church that tough times are going to come. Pain is going to come. We're going to receive these trials and tribulations from inside, from outside in the world, and then just from living in a fallen world. And we can expect that. But we have to remember, we're not promised to be saved from these trials. We're promised to be saved through the trials. And it's the fire of these trials, these tough times that tempers our faith, that refines our faith, making it stronger, making it more resilient, and even making it more authentic to a watching world who sees us suffer. They see us come through this with faith in Jesus, and our faith becomes more authentic to them. In John chapter 16, John's gospel parallels Matthew at this point, and he's talking about the same conversation. John records this, that Jesus tells the disciples that in all of these inevitable tough times, they can take heart because he has overcome it all. So at the risk of sounding trite or even cliche, can I summarize this by saying, God's got this? I know, I know that phrase sounds a little bit flippant maybe, but it's the truth. God's got this. Whatever you're going through, he's foreseen it. He's planned for it, and he's there to bring you through it. So be patient in your suffering. Endure. Breathe in and breathe out and trust that God will work out everything for the good of those who love him just like he said he would. And you can trust that as you go through these trials and as you persevere that he will receive the glory. And then we come to a section here, the final two verses, 13 and 14. This is like the conversational uptick. This is where it really starts to get exciting. After a bunch of negatives to the disciples, Jesus ends with some encouragement. He first says that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Jesus is not using the phrase here, the end, to refer to the end of the age. He's talking about the end of our lives. Because the gospel calls us into a long-distance marathon Christian life, not just a short wind sprint. When Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved, he's saying that perseverance by faith, persevering through all of these trials by faith in him to our very last breath on this earth is the marker of those who have truly put their trust in him. 
And the final thing he says, he says here this morning in this conversation on the Mount of Olives, it's the climax of this entire section. This is where the music is building. This is what we've been waiting for. He finally tells them the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then he says, and then the end will come. Finally, there's prophecy we can count on. Jesus said it. He just told us the timeline. And then the end will come. And that's our big idea this morning. The gospel must be proclaimed throughout the whole world. So after a list of all these things that are leading to the end but are not the end, Jesus tells us that once the gospel is delivered as a testimony to all nations, he's coming. Isn't that exciting? That's the only prophecy that we need to focus on. Okay, so now what? Where do we go from here? Dr. George Ladd sums up our appropriate response in his book, The Gospel of the Kingdom. He says this, and it's very logical. He says, I only know one thing. Christ has not returned. When our task is done, Christ will return. Our responsibility is not to define the timing. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is not done. So let's get up and get busy completing the mission. There will be trials and tribulations. There will be tough time and pain, but we have a mission to accomplish. What's amazing is that Jesus said the troubles of this world will not hinder the progress of his gospel. They're not going to slow down the advancement of his kingdom. Instead, all of these troubles will give opportunity for the gospel to advance. Verse 14 says that the gospel will reach all nations, not might, will. And the church flourishes through the combination of persecution and proclamation. So when you think about all that's happening in the world today, none of it is going to thwart the progress of his kingdom. All of the highs and the lows that we experience give us much opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. And that's our task. Our task is to make disciples of all nations. That's what he called us to. When Christ returns, there's not going to be a trophy for who guessed his return date the closest. So don't waste your time on that. There's no value in that. But rather, those who have spent their time taking the gospel, the hope, the good news of Jesus Christ to their neighbors and to their friends and to their families are going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That was the main focus of this conversation between Jesus and the disciples on that hillside 2,000 years ago. That's exactly what he's telling us today. Just as George Ladd said, let's get busy and let's complete the mission. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's here in black and white. What's going to happen in the future and how we can use it to impact what we're going through today. Father, we thank you that we can have great faith in you as this earth trembles, as persecution comes. Lord, we can trust that you've foreseen it, that you've planned for it, that you know what we're going through, and that we can lean on you ultimately. 
Lord, thank you for entrusting us as the means by which your gospel is proclaimed to this world. What a huge task you've given to us. But you've equipped us with your word. You've equipped us with your spirit that lives inside each of us. That doesn't allow this truth that's in us to stay inside, but it has to come out because of the joy that we have and the gift that we've received. Thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would be with this church, not just Woodside Elginac or even Woodside as a whole, but the entirety of your church, your beautiful bride, that we would be mission-focused for your gospel to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.